Well, I want to continue to welcome you to worship and to invite you to do whatever it is that is necessary to still your soul, your heart, your mind, your physical frame, perhaps even your relationships, and even perhaps your phone, so that all of us can be uh, on the same page and on the same readiness to hear from God this morning, because He really does want to continue to speak to us and through us. So my name's Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel, and I'm delighted that you're here. I am convinced that despite everything else that might be going on in your life, God really does want to communicate and connect with each and every one of us, perhaps in a unique way. And so this morning, I believe that God's going to do that as we wrap up our sermon series in the book of Psalms. So we'll be there in a little bit. We're going to be in Psalm 36. But I want to sort of set the stage with a little bit uh, more than usual, a lengthy introduction to get us to Psalm 36, because it's such a treasured piece of literature. I want to make sure and give it its due justice in terms of treatment and the time of handling it. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience, either professionally or socially, communally, uh, maybe romantically, I don't know, where someone says, hey, tell me about yourself. And, and maybe you've not quite known what to say. I mean, tell me about yourself, and you kind of just want to go, oh, I'm a, I'm a seven, because you're into that whole monkey gram, Teddy Graham thing, I don't know, whatever. Or maybe you're from an older generation, and you remember the things like, oh, I'm a choleric, phlegmatic, uh, I'm a, uh, all the, whatever the thing, or maybe you even more went into the deep, deep magic of, I'm an autumn from Color Me Beautiful, remember that? I, <laughs> some of you are like, yes, I am. Well, I am, all right? I don't know how you would describe yourself. Maybe some of you are like, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. But maybe you've had the opposite experience where you've tried to get someone to tell you about themselves. And, and maybe you said, tell me about yourself. And maybe you, you tried to help them out. No, no, no. When you want to find out about somebody, ask them very open-ended questions. Tell me about yourself. What are you like? And then be quiet. Maybe after a while, what do you think people see when they see you? And then be quiet. It's interesting how people would view themselves and how they're trying to curate a certain image. I wonder, however, if you had the opportunity to stand in front of God Almighty, the God who was and is and who will be, if you had the opportunity to stand in front of God himself and say, well, tell me about yourself. What are you like? How, how do you think people see you? What do you think he would say? Well, as it happens, we have just that kind of episode recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And it is one of my favorite narratives of the entire Old Testament. If you've been around Bethel at all, you will recognize it because I refer to it with great frequency because I am convinced it is one of the most central underpinnings of theological thinking in the whole of the Bible. It's way back in the book of Exodus, and it has to deal with a man named Moses. Now, I want to tell you this story because what happens with Moses is going to set us up to understand what's happening in Psalm 36. You might remember the story. I hope you do. Thousands and thousands of years ago, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a nation. And the nation wasn't where it was supposed to be. They were in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they were beginning to cry and complain because life was hard. Can you just imagine a whole society, a whole nation, a whole culture complaining because it's hot? 
Just, just go with me on this. And God heard their cry, and he sent a dude and his brother. That's kind of a weird strategy. That's not how I would go about things if I was God, but that's because I'm not God. Moses goes down from meeting into Egypt, and he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, let my people go. And after 10 biblical plagues, you might recall, Pharaoh finally releases the children of Israel and they sojourn north. And right as they are about to enter into the land of Canaan, they come to the front door of Canaan, a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they can see that it's a marvelous place. There's grapes the size of your head. It is lush. It is fertile. There's already livestock and homes and there's date palms and it's massive. And they say, we're not going in there. Oh, no, 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 no. We, 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 got, we got really big giants and a little bitty God, and we can't survive it. We're not going in. And so God closes the door. They did not believe that God was good. They did not believe that God could be trusted. They did not believe that God was for them. You ever been there? Of course you have. And so they get to take laps in the wilderness for 38 years. It wasn't actually 40. God was gracious. It was 38 years. They weren't lost. They knew exactly where they were, and so did all the surrounding nations. Well, finally, at the end of 38 years, God summons Moses up the high holy mountain, Mount Horeb in Hebrew, Mount Sinai in Greek. And Moses is up there a long time. He's up there for like 40 days, and there's rumbling, and there's storms, and there's thunder, and there's fire. And so the people begin to wonder, whoo, that Moses guy, well, we didn't like him very much either. Maybe God finally got tired of the quail too. Maybe God just killed him. I'm not going to miss that guy. You know, he was kind of cranky. He was kind of fussy. Eh. And so they begin to murmur to Moses' brother Aaron. And they say, what are we going to do? And Aaron says, I got an idea. Here's what I want us all to do. Everybody, everybody, give me all your jewelry, all of your earrings, all your ornamentation, all of your gold. Bring it to me. And I'm going to melt it down and make us a little something. Okay, and so the people do. That's astonishing. They do, and Aaron bangs out a golden calf. Now, let me just say, one of the worst ministerial moves in history. When your senior pastor says, let me have all your gold, I'm gonna make livestock. Time to run. Aaron does it, and they begin to have this debauched festival around this golden calf, and Aaron, shockingly, Aaron tells the people, this is the Lord your God that brought you up out of Egypt. Now, that's astonishing. It's blasphemous. At this point, Joshua, who was with Moses up on the mountain, he hears a ruckus down below, and he says, hey, Moses, I think we got a problem. It sounds like war in the camp. And Moses says, no, young fella, that's not war. They're having naughty time. Time to go. Sure enough, Moses and Joshua descend the mountain, and they see the debauched depravity manifesting around this golden calf. Moses throws the Ten Commandments down. He takes the golden calf. He grinds it down into powder, mixes it with water, and makes the people drink it. That's what I'm talking about. That's called ministry, baby. Okay. He has the tablets reformed, and God says, here's the deal, Moses. That's too far. They have blasphemed. They have rebelled for the last time. I'm just going to kill them all. You might expect Moses to say, <laughs> what took you so long? No. Moses says, don't you do it. He beseeches, he face plants, and he intercedes on their behalf. The innocent on behalf of the many guilty. Don't do it, God. Why? Because of what you're like. You see, the nations say that you're not good, that you can't be trusted, that you're not for us. And so if you do this, and you would be just in doing so, nobody argues that. But if you do that, 
How you are perceived by the nations will be vindicated. Don't do it. God says, Moses, I like you. Well said. Tell you what then. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave them alive. And I'm actually going to let them go into the promised land. And you're going to lead them in. Not only that, Moses, I'm going to send my angel in front of you. And he's going to pave the way. He's going to plow the field. I'm going to make you rich and strong and famous and powerful. And you're going to have nations come from you. But here's, here's the thing. I, uh, I'm not going, Moses, because your people have worn me out. Moses, again, face plants, and he prays, and he intercedes, and he says, no, 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 God, your people, they keep volleying back and forth with who's the people are, your people, we're not going in there if you don't go, which I think all the people were probably going, no, I'm okay, we'll go ahead, we'll take the deal. Moses says, no, we're not going unless you go. God says, you're getting it, Moses. What would you like? You know what Moses essentially says? He says, I want you to tell me about yourself. I want you to tell me what you're like. I mean, I, I got it. I kind of get it. But what, what are you like? I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to understand more about what you are like. And God says, well, I can't show you all of that. It would vaporize you. It would obliterate you. But I will show you what I can show you. I will tell you what you can comprehend and fathom. And for that, we have the book of Exodus, chapter 34. I'll invite you to turn there if you'd like, just very briefly. God can't demonstrate all of his incommunicable attributes. By that, we mean the things that are God, that God cannot share with us. Things like his simplicity. The ingredient of God is simply God. All that God is is all that God is, and he is God. He can't share that with us. But he can share things like love and mercy and sovereignty to a certain extent. And so those are the things that God is going to describe himself to Moses. He places Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended. The Lord here is, is Yahweh. That is his name. The covenant-keeping name of God is Yahweh. God is not his name. That is his job description. That is his title. Yahweh is his name. Now, that's important or you don't understand verse 5 at all. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that's Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord descends and declaims the name of the Lord. Now, why is that? Because his name is I am. His name is existence. His name is that which exists and is reality. I am the is one. I am the is one. It's my name. I am the is one. And Moses is going, ha. Why, why does God have to tell people that he is and that he is the is one? Because our default depraved stature and status rejects that. We want the job. We want to sit on that throne. And so God has to proclaim his name. There is a God, and I am he. There is a God, and I am he. I am that which is. I am the is one. Exodus 34, 5, one of these central verses in your Old Testament. He continues, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, I am. Why? Because our default tendency is to assume that he isn't. God says, I am. In fact, it's my name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word I want to draw our attention to. And faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses' response to all that is to simply worship, to agree with God and to participate and cooperate in proclaiming and declaring the excellencies of the one that is. Now, that is a central, foundational approach that all of us are invited. Now, when God says, the Lord, the Lord, I am the one that is, and I abound in steadfast love, the word there in Hebrew is chesed, chesed. I prefer the translation loving kindness. Some of your translations might say covenant-keeping love or steadfast mercy or mercy. It's chesed. I want you to say that with me. One, two, three, chesed. One again, one, two, three, chesed. You know you're doing it right if the person in front of you goes, what in the, ah, chesed. The loving kindness of God. God, tell me about yourself. What are you like? God says, I abound in loving kindness. You know what I'm like? I'm like, um, well, I'm like me, and there's nothing like me, but here's what me is like, loving kindness. And so that's our big idea for this morning as we wrap up our series in the Psalm from Psalm 36. Our big idea goes like this. God is loving kind. Now that's such good news. Since he's omnipotent, all-powerful, and sovereign, that's terrible news unless he is also loving kind. To the extent that each and every one of us individually and corporately as a campus, as a community, as a congregation can believe that, it will quite literally transform human lives. It really will. God is loving kind. So for that now, we're going to go to Psalm 36. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. And then we'll try to unpack it a little bit and we'll see if we can apply it. Psalm 36, just 12 verses. I want to start with what we call the superscription. This is the, the, the title, sort of the instructions. Psalm 36 says, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. This is King David, who is the chief liturgist of the nation. It is his responsibility to rule in righteousness, to reflect the regnant of the realm. It is his job to show people what righteous rule looks like and to lead them in worship of the true king of Israel, that is Yahweh. So he's writing this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit such that the entire covenant community, the messianic people, would agree with one another. They would all see and think and feel the same way about God. That they would have God's mind about God. Do you see that? They would all believe, feel, sense, see, and hear the same things about God. And that would be the great common denominator. This is how he writes Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love or loving kindness, your chesed, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. 
How precious is your steadfast love, your chesed. O God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love, your loving kindness, your chesed, to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There are evildoers. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word. This is the things and the thinkings that David wants for the covenant community to have about God. Because if we have God's mind about it, if we share God's thoughts about it, then we share God's attitudes and actions about it. So this is how David starts off. This psalm really nicely and conveniently sort of translates down into an outline. And all these little outline points conveniently start with a V. The first four verses have to do with vanity. David's going to paint a picture here uh, of an unattractive and ugly and unsustainable life. And we have to remember, this is 3,000 years ago. And yet King David has been a very observant guy. He was the runt of the litter. All of his siblings were older. He watched how they interacted with one another, how they interacted with him, how people in the community interacted. He watched how the Philistines all interacted with one another, how his soldiers and mighty men interacted with one another, with the soldiers of Saul. He had seen how people's default depravity actually worked itself out. He's been very observant, and he knows Really, the reality is not much has changed, even though this 3,000 years ago was way back in the good old days of yore. Human depravity is default, and it spans millennia. It comes from deep within our personhood. What is David saying? Well, it's something that each of us needs to hear. He is saying very clearly with concert in the rest of Scripture that basically human beings are not inherently good. That might stun you. That might shock you. There is about a 150-year-old assumption in the Western world that all humanity is inherently good. We just need a slightly better environment. And by environment, I don't mean ecology. I mean context. We just need some better economic programs, some better militaristic this, some better improved education. We just need a better sandbox, and everyone's generally good. Now, if that's your worldview that sets you up to experience the world in a whole different way, however, King David... And the rest of Scripture are telling us, no, man is not inherently good. In fact, man is inherently wicked. This is Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. That our heart, our soul, our mind is inherently depraved and that we can't understand it. We can't out-logic. We cannot out-reason our own depravity. That is us on our best day. That depravity that can... that characterizes every single human being ever, it wells up and it whispers which way we are to walk and what we are to do all the time, all the time. That's unfortunately our default human condition. This is what David has observed. He's talking about the way of foolishness and of wickedness. One of my heroes in the faith from the 20th century, an old British preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I've said this before because it bears repeating, he says, our spiritual problem stems from the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. 
Now that might sound like doublespeak, but it isn't. What he's saying is, left on autopilot, our flesh, our sin nature, our corruption and depravity is always bombarding us with all kinds of errant messages of foolishness, immaturity, and childishness. All the time, all the time, all the time. We have to volitionally and intentionally take the reins back of our soul and tell ourselves true things. Continue to put the gospel on repeat, 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 because our flesh is going to whisper to us foolishness and lies. And so we lay hold of true things and we set aside lie things. And we grab hold of gospel things and we set aside foolish things and immature things. This has to be the way of the child of God. It requires a deliberate and intentional reminding of the reality that there is a God. He does have a will, and he is a certain way. But David describes in this person a vanity, a person that can only listen to and heed the stirrings of his depraved soul and react accordingly. It's a, bla- it's a bad, it's a bleak picture. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, your translation probably says. They're trying to help. More than likely, the better translation goes like this. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. He understands that this is his default proclivity as well. There is just a wickedness, a foolishness, a depravity that plagues every single person. And here's how they're characterized. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, the word fear usually in Hebrew in the Old Testament is yareh. Yareh has to do with uh, terror, uh, the fear of dying, the fear of being killed in battle, the fear of being eaten by a lion. Yareh, that's not this word. It's a different word entirely. This is pachad. David says there is no pachad. That is, uh, we would translate that as dread. They have no dread whatsoever. There is no dread of God before his eyes. There is no judge, therefore there is no judgment. I think we can all agree that it's easy to imagine a society where there is no fear of judgment, no fear of ever getting caught for our thoughts or our words or our deeds. Way back in the crazy corruption of the Roman Empire, a famous Roman poet wrote this about the state of the people of the crumbling Roman Empire. He said, the evil soul whispers to itself, believing that God does not tend to mortal affairs. Oh, but he does. David's point, as he observes humanity around him, is that no one is above this kind of condition. We all have these tendencies. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered, been tempted by, been allured by some type of sin, and in the depths of your being, instantly rationalized it because God won't really notice, or he won't care, or even if he does notice or care, he won't really do anything about it. Let's have a show of hands. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. I do that on an hourly basis, instinctively. My flesh just says, it's fine, it's fine. You can do this. You deserve it. You're entitled to it. God doesn't know. God's busy with that thing in Malaysia. He's very disinterested. He's very distant. He's not paying attention to you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That is wickedness, rationalizing wickedness. And it is the way that all people walk by default. And it is a scary thing. It's not that our hearts are necessarily hardened against God. It's just that in our default wickedness, we like to flatter or elevate ourselves to behave as if he isn't at all. But he is. It's his name, Yahweh. I am the one that is. And again, our behavior is really based on our actual belief. His name is that he is. 
Do we functionally and practically believe that? I will just tell you transparently, pastorally, there have been so many times this week when a thought has crossed my mind, when an image has flickered past my face, and I had to be reminded, Yahweh. Just that simply. He is. Just, just say his name. Just Yahweh. Despite what my flesh would love me to believe, functionally, Yahweh. He is. Not only is he, God is loving kind. Because of that default assumption about God and what he's like, the person David's describing in this life of vanity is always active in deceit and trouble. He has no choice. It's the only way of life that makes sense to him. It is his religion, his organizing narrative. But our story is that we have a God that is, and this, this God is loving kind. So, Let's talk about this chesed, this loving kindness, verse 5 and 6. We've seen the life of vanity. Now I want to talk about the vastness of his loving kindness. Verse 5. Your chesed, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. We might expect, after David describes all of this depravity, this wickedness, this debauchery, this foolishness, this rejection of God's goodness and character and wisdom, that David would respond as the king and say, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to up the catechism. We're going to increase education. We're going to have a better economy. We're going to double the military, and we're going to create a better environment, and here's some philosophical truisms and some little blurbs and some bumper stickers with a Jesus fish, and everyone's going to be better. No. You know what David does? <laughs> he worships. He doesn't try to correct the problems that he's facing contemporarily. He simply worships. It's the same thing we see the Apostle Paul do in Ephesus, literally writing under the shadow of the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians where all kinds of debauchery was happening. Paul says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. David describes a life of vanity, but he says, your chesed, your loving kindness is vast. It completely covers the entirety of the cosmos. Now, that's very good for us to understand. David wants us to know his loving kindness is massive, bigger than we think. Yes, God is a God of judgment and wrath and justice and vindication. Of course he is. But more than 200 times God describes himself as loving kind. 200 times. His loving kindness is the thing that shelters us from all of the other attributes of God. God wants us to know that. He goes on, your righteousness, verse 6, is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O God. The clouds of the heavens, Augustine said, are preachers of the word of truth. I love this. St. Augustine, one of my heroes in the faith, he loved to witness God's goodness in creation. And for him, he said, the clouds from Psalm 36, the clouds are reminders of God's loving kindness, of his faithfulness, of his covenant-keeping love, his mercy, kindness, and compassion. I don't know if you're like me at all. If you are, I apologize. Get help with that. But I need triggers. I need reminders because I tend to fall into a rut of my own depravity. My thinker is busted. Maybe you can relate. And so I have to find little triggers that remind me. When I walk outside and I see big puffy clouds, and I know there haven't been a lot of them lately. I know. But when I see clouds, I'm reminded of St. Augustine, who was reminded of King David. 
Your loving kindness extends to the heavens, the clouds of your faithfulness. And so I, there's a cloud, Yahweh. He is, he is present and he's good and he's for me and he loves me. And in about 30 seconds, you know what I gotta remind myself? Yahweh, he is good, he is, he loves me and he is for me because inevitably my all leaks and my eyes fall. So we preach little sermons to our souls. We tell ourselves true things and we do away with false things. And by the end of the day, I'm exhausted and I sleep like a baby. I invite you to it. The clouds of heaven are preachers of the word of truth. We can be reminded by our created surroundings. And so David responds by thanking God for his wisdom and giving him praise. He's not just speaking in general platitudes. He's directly thanking God as a person that actually knows God and has a relationship with God. Unlike someone who is atheistic or agnostic, when they feel grateful for something, they have nobody to thank. That's a terrible way to live. David doesn't call it this, of course, but here we have in verse 6, we have the gospel. Again, verse 6. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Every single human is wicked and depraved and by, def by default and by nature. Yet God's righteousness and judgments seek out the entire creation. There is nothing about me in thought, word, and deed that he does not know. And if, if that was all there was to it, we would be justly obliterated. But because of his loving kindness, man he saves. He doesn't have to, and he's not obligated to, but he's merciful, and he wants to. So that's the, the vastness of his loving kindness. Now we get to move into the value of his loving kindness. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, your chesed, your loving kindness, O oh God. He's not really asking a question. He's saying, your loving kindness is so precious. It is the most precious thing, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It is so precious. The aspect of your loving kindness is the place in which we as human beings take refuge from all the other attributes. That's why it's so beautiful and so compelling. While his chesed, his loving kindness, extends to all people in the world, there's a unique acceptance and an appropriation of that for people who are believers. He's talking about this experience of delight. Now let me unpack this a little bit. Verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. These are people who are believers. The, the word house here has to do with the temple. And when David sees and thinks of the people of Israel who come together in festal merriment and celebration at the, the feast celebrations, he's looking at them celebrating the loving kindness, the provision, the bounty, the goodness, the grace of God. He says, they feast on the abundance of your house. That's temple language. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. Now, this is some of the most beautiful poetic language King David has ever mustered. In one little half verse, he's just connected the table of contents to the maps in your Bible. He gives us one nice little cover-to-cover -cover eschatology. When he says they drink from the river of delights, that word delights is, in Hebrew, even. The New East Texas version would be Eden, as in the garden thereof, all right? They drink from the river of Eden. Paradise lost? No. David says that when the people of God come together 
and they contemplate and they consider and they celebrate the chesed, the loving kindness of God, it is like they are drinking from the rivers of the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, Revelation 21 tells us, we will spend all the rest of eternity drinking from the river of life in the Garden of Eden. So what we had and was lost, we get to experience in the here and now simply by rightly considering who God is. What are you like, God? Well, I'm loving kind. Ah, that is an Eden. That is a delight. And I will experience it forever and forever. We are from the future. We get to experience what was in the past here in the present. This is why thinking theologically matters so massively, so marvelously. To spend time contemplating his loving kindness transport David and hopefully transports us to the garden of delight and joy. One of my favorite quotes from one of the medieval church fathers. He put it this way, St. Ambrose. He said, it is good to be inebriated. Hold on, he keeps going, relax. It is good to be inebriated on the cup of God's salvation. To just be filled to the point of euphoria I am dark and depraved. My thinking is by default wickedness. And he loves me. And he is for me. And I get to drink of the river of delights now that was but was lost because of one who has come. And I will experience it for all eternity. Now, when you begin to have God's mind about that and your own life, it changes how you feel about traffic. It changes how you feel about the heat. It changes how you feel about whatever might be going on governmentally that doesn't matter all that much. Now, that's what the people of God are invited in to do. How valuable is God's loving kindness? It is the foundation of life itself. Through God's light of revelation, we actually begin to make sense of the world around us. In your light, we have light. It's the only way to make sense of the life that we live. In other words, it is the most precious thing to our person. Later on, the Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.7. I have the the New English translation, I prefer this. So you who believe see his value. The ESV says, to those who believe he is precious. It is believing that gives us the capacity to be illumined by God's spirit and God's word as God's people. And the more we do that, the more we have light and the more we are euphoric in our consideration of the glories of God. Well, that's through verse nine. That's the victory are the valuableness of his loving kindness. Now we transition to the victory of his loving kindness. Verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love. Continue your chesed. Can I just tell you, that's the surprise of the psalm. We have a tendency to think, well, God loves me. I'm saved. That's it. See you in heaven one day. Between now and then, I'll just kind of schlog out my existence until I'm dead. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. No, we are the full, unmitigated, unrestrained recipients of God's loving kindness, and he simply continues to give us more all the days of our life. What kind of God would do that? Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Luke. He says, it will be like this. And he grabs a wicker basket, and he dumps seed into it, and he shakes the basket, and then he presses it down, and he pours more seed on it. And he goes, that, that's how my God loves you. Or, or, or do you think of God like this? That's not God. That's a cartoon character that does not exist. Do not worship him. He's so loving kind. It is victorious. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those 
who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. The currency of the kingdom of Christ is righteousness. You know what God continues to do? Fill you more and more and more. (laughs) It is not enough to have your sin removed. You must also be replete, flush, completely loaded with righteousness. And God does that at your conversion. And then the rest of your life, you know what he does? He continues to pack you full of righteousness. Because he's just so good. He's so merciful. He's so kind and compassionate. Think rightly about this God and worship. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is your righteousness to the upright of heart. Now, don't just hear that and think God's making me gooder. No. God is dispatching emissaries, agents, and ambassadors. He's doing a thing with the people that he redeems to be instruments of redemption for those who are in need of redemption. You get to be an agent and an emissary of God's identification. Do you see that when we comprehend God's loving kindness, we're not just going to heaven one day when we die. We're a part of a grand master theme of redemption. And now I have drunk from the river of Eden of delights. I'm doing so now and I contemplate his loving kindness and I will do so for all eternity. And in the meantime, you know what I get to do? Come. 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 It's how revelation ends. The spirit and the bride say, come. I know it's hot. I know the government's a mess. I know there's wildfires in Canada. Come on, Canada, fix it. I I know. But come. See that he is. And he's kind. And he's wonderful. And he's glorious. And he's everlasting. And he's eternal. And he's marvelous. And he's so nice to those he loves. There will be judgment, but don't you... What do you think about this God? If there was a God, how would you like for him to be? Like the way I've just described him? Good, because he is. That's his name. That's what we get to be about, the victory of his loving kindness. Verse 11. Let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. I love this. There's a symmetry here. He starts off by saying in verse 1, transgression, pashach, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. He knows that he's not fully baked. There's still an opportunity for error, for mistake, for falling. And and at the end of his life, David actually does make some pretty tragic errors. But his prayer is protect me. Keep me thinking rightly. Keep me feeling rightly about you and who you are so that I can be about your program of redemption in the world. There, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That might be a strange verse. What is David demonstrating? He is showing us that he has the mind of God. In the mind of God, the wicked and the unrighteous are thrown down already. And so David sees them just the same. He's not trying to hatch plans and devise schemes to get rid of them. Those are God's problems. Instead, he invites them. He prays that God would do for them what, he, what God has done for David. And we get to be a part of that. You see, God is loving kind. His loving kindness is all of his goodness, kindness, compassion, mercy, and love aimed directly at you. Have you ever thought of God that way? All of his mercy, all of his compassion, all of his kindness, all of his niceness aimed directly at you and at me and at us together. God is loving kind. So what do we take away? How do we walk out of here 
ruminating and meditating and remembering all of this. Three very quick points, and you've already heard them. Taking them right from the passage, it goes like this. Number one, his loving kindness is vast. There's nowhere you and I can go where he is not loving kind, where his chesed doesn't cover the cosmos, okay? Every time you and I walk outside or experience some aspect of creation, we have the opportunity to preach a little sermon to our own soul about the loving kindness of God and how it really and truly is all around us all the time, always. We talk to ourselves, meaning we tell ourselves the truth rather than listen to all the fears, uncertainties, rationalizations, entitlements, and doubts that inevitably emerge from our flesh. The heavens declare the glory of God. Their line goes out, Psalm 19 says, this parallel psalm. Their line goes out. It's the idea of a Jewish rabbinic cantor who sings out a line of worship. Does the congregation respond? Psalm 19 says that all of creation has sent forth the first line of worship. The question is, does the congregation respond? The heavens declare the glory of God. Their line goes out. Will we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond? The loving kindness of God is vast. Secondly, his loving kindness is valuable. In fact, it's the most valuable thing. God actually does care intensely and immensely about the goings-on of mortals like you and me. And what's more, he's good. His loving kindness is his goodness aimed at us. And so that really is the most precious thing in all the cosmos to those that believe and that bend their minds to comprehend. This omnipotent God also loves me, and he's present. He is The most valuable thing in my possession is also the one thing I can never lose because I'm not the one that clings to it. Rather, he clings to me by it. Now that's joy if you will receive it. Thirdly, his loving kindness is victorious. God gets it done, and he does so by loving people despite all the many reasons not to. God gets it done by sending people that he loves to love people that he loves. He sent Moses. Did God need Moses' help? Hard no. God loves to love people through people. So we get to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Certainly, a day of final judgment is still going to come, and wrath of God is going to be poured out on all that reject his loving kindness. But for now, God offers us the privilege and the opportunity to participate in the identification of our world, in a sense, and inviting those who are far from God to enter into a saving knowledge of God, to invite God them to be the recipients of God doing for them what God has done for us because he really is that good. It is his kindness, his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. God is loving kind. Now that may all be abstract because it's 3,000 years old in a psalm and it might be poetic and you need something a little bit more to like wrap your head and hands and heart around. Okay, okay, all right, I get it. Okay. Jesus, you want to know what loving kindness looks like? Look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Every word about the life and the ministry of Jesus is an expression of, an expansion of loving kindness. You see how he talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who's with her sixth partner? He's loving kind. He's true, but he's loving kind to her. You see how he engages Martha and Mary at the death of their brother Lazarus? He's loving kind. Do you see how he engages the disciples in the garden? He's loving kind. He is the personification, the exact image of the invisible. He's loving kind. 
So we're given the, the pictures and the, the narratives of the Lord Jesus to see, oh, that's what God is like. In fact, John 1.18 says he exegetes the Father. He demonstrates all of the loving kindness. Spend time with Jesus. Don't, don't waste your time doing Jesus trivia. Spend time with the person that is loving kind. It's Jesus. Block out all the noise, all the other things that have the opportunity to just make you mad. Jesus doesn't make you mad. He's loving kind. Look at his life. What is to be our response when we spend time with Jesus? Well, he's told us in an ancient text way back from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does Yahweh, the one who is, require of you but to (laughs) do justice. No, that doesn't mean what you might think it means. It doesn't mean that you just do some good stuff or that you act fairly. No, it is the enrightification of your whole sphere of influence. That's justice. That's the word, justice, that you would be an instrument, the tip of the spear of acting to set the world to rights, that you would be a part of the enrightification, the identification of a broken and, dare I say, jacked-up world. What is God's plan for your life? Do justice. Be righteous. I don't mean pious. I don't mean goody two-shoes. I mean enrightify the whole. That might just start with your marriage. It probably will. It, it might start with your job. It might start with your kids, with your parents, with your coworkers, your neighbors, your church, family, in your life group. I don't know. What has he told you that is good? What is required of you? Enrightify. Do justice. And to love Chesed. To love chesed. To love loving kindness. To love steadfast love. To just make, to make it just so precious to you. When I think about the Lord, it's just, that's so precious. That's what he requires of us. And just like David at the end of Psalm 36, to walk humbly with our God. Not near him or about him. With him. Always understanding that by grace we walk with him hand in hand. We've earned Nothing, but thanks be to Jesus. He sees us in him. God is loving kind. All week. That you, that you, that you would believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your challenge. You're correcting our errant thoughts and feelings and ideas about you. We have, in a sense, God said, tell us about yourself. What do you like? And you've done so. You've told us what you're like, that you are loving kind. And so, Father, for every hard heart in this place this morning that perhaps for the first time needs to hear and receive that and believe that and have your mind on the matter, would you do that by your Spirit? For those, Father, who don't know you, who perhaps know a lot about you and who really don't dread anything, they just don't want to have bad things happen in their life, would you give them the grace and the gift of salvation? Would you move by your Spirit and walk them out of death into life, just like you led the Israelites out of Egypt through the work of one man? For the rest of us, Father, who have begun to feel like you are distant, disinterested, perhaps maybe even disappointed, Would you remind us through this passage that you are loving kind. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to tell ourselves true things and to ignore and obliterate untrue things. 
God, thank you for loving us. Thanks for being for us and being with us. Thank you for being our God that is. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.